It's Mark Llewellyn here. It's about time we heard another interview on Pure West Radio with successful people. Here we are today with Terry Waite, who was kidnapped in 1987 and taken by Hezbollah, a terrorist group. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about overcoming challenges and adversity. Uh, so Terry, can you tell us exactly, for many of the viewers, myself, we all know you, anyone over 40 in this country, we all know you, um, can you tell the younger viewers basically what happened, you're a special envoy for the Archbishop of Canterbury, you went out uh, to Lebanon to help some hostages and you got taken hostage yourself. Well, I have a long history of uh, working for the release of people who've been wrongly detained. Uh, detained against the law and illegally and kept in bad conditions. Which goes back to when I was a comparatively young man and worked in Uganda and was there at the time when the Amin coup took place. And that was a pretty terrible time. Um, many people were murdered, in fact so many were murdered, that were damned, that crosses the river Nile, that's a place called Ginger, which is just not too far from Kampala, the capital, was blocked with the bodies of the people who'd been thrown over that down into the river. 
So it was a bloody time. And many of my colleagues were captured, either because they belonged to the wrong tribe, or the wrong political party, or their face didn't fit for one reason or another. And many were murdered. And I met him in on some of the cases and was able to successfully obtain the release of some people, not too many. Many, I'm afraid, which uh, I've put to death. And that was my first experience, really, of negotiating <coughs> at that level. I had worked in pretty well every conflict situation in the world. Uh, before I joined uh, the Archbishop's staff as an advisor to him on international matters, when I went there, uh, I was involved in uh, negotiating for the release of hostages from Iran during the time of the Iranian Revolution. But the reason I became involved in that was because people, uh, relatives, came and asked if we could help. Because they said that they were not getting any information and not getting any, making any progress with obtaining the release of their people. So I went out to Iran, I negotiated with the Revolutionary Guards, was able to bring people home without payment. Uh, I don't believe in paying ransom for hostages. And without any compromise of principle, but through negotiation. And then following Iran, Libya, uh, where I negotiated directly with Gaddafi, um, and again, obtained the release of people. And then Beirut, where uh, I did negotiate with uh, Hezbollah. They always deny, for one reason or another, that they captured me. But um, they, I'm pretty sure it was. You knew, <laughs> you knew your captors were. Pretty sure it was. That's, um, sorry, you, you mentioned that there's something very interesting there about the, the communication skills. Um, how did you get uh, General Gaddafi to release these people? What did you say? Well, to explain it a little bit, there are two, roughly two types of hostage taking. And they're separated for the sake of clarity. Um, and because the negotiating styles differ according to which type of hostage taking takes place. On the one hand, you have hostage taking which is for political purpose. And that means that people are taken and they're used as pressure points to bring about a political goal or political end that the group may have. Um, the other type would go under the heading of criminal, and that is where hostages are taken primarily for ransom. Now, the two types are both criminal acts, of course, but they're separate because the way in which you would negotiate for a political cases is very different from the way you negotiate for criminal cases where ransom is demanded. All my experience has been in the first one in the political area. Mm. And the way one deals with that is first of all, you try and establish face-to-face -face contact with the people who have the key to unlocking the problem. Now that's not easy. I mean, the way I got, you asked a specific question, the way I got contact with um, was through the late uh, Julius Nyerere, who was president of Tanzania, and also at the time was um, 
president of the um, OAU, which is now defunct, but the Organization of African Unity. And I phoned him up one day and said, um, do you think you could get me a meeting with Gaddafi? Because Gaddafi would be at the OAU meeting. Yeah. And he responded by saying, well, he's a very unusual man. I'll do my best. And within a couple of weeks, I met Gaddafi. I was put in, in Libya. And the way I approached it, first of all, you have to establish a rapport with who you're speaking. You have to be able to build a relationship with Am I doing all right, mate? <laughs> <laughs> if you can get a relationship of trust, that's the first thing. Yeah. Secondly, you have to uh, be able then uh, to get to the root of the issue. Why, why? Listen, why is it you're doing what you're doing? Yeah. If you can do that, then you can begin to get to the point where you can begin to unravel, hopefully, the problem and find an effective solution. Uh, it's not always possible to do that, but it is possible. Those are general ways of working. I mean, you have to be pretty flexible and pretty varied. But um, you're, not, you're not in political cases. I don't view it as though you're going in to make the other person look foolish yeah. or to win-lose. You're going in to try and understand and to try and uh, get some outcome, which means that face is not lost. Now, hostage-taking uh, of that kind still exists, but it's changed dramatically uh, at the moment now. It's more um, hostage-taking, well, of course, we've seen the increase in that for ransom, Somalia being one particular prime yeah. example, but there are many other examples, Nigeria and so on. And sometimes it's a mixture now, a much bigger mixture between political and criminal. And also, it, uh, although it's true to say that hostages have always been killed, always been murdered. In my day, when I was taken hostage in Beirut, um, people who were taken alongside me were murdered. The difference between then and now is that the murder is so much more visible because of the social media. Yeah. You look on social media and you can see the beheadings, or you could see them, I, I've had to watch it professionally, but you can see them. And uh, they're brutal, and they're committed largely by people who are of a psychopathic disposition and who are doing it deliberately as an act of terror to terrorize people, which is what their intention is. And um, they succeed in terrorizing people. Yeah. The very terrible thing to happen. But it's yeah. not a new phenomenon, it's just more visible than it was years ago. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, you said about the communications as well. Um, you know, it's like a businessman, say someone wants to make a rapport with somebody. Uh, somebody meets a businessman in his office and sees like, uh, oh, I see you play golf, you know, and stuff like that. How did that work with Gaddafi? You didn't say, do you play golf or do you know what I mean? How did you... No, I, I, actually, I actually took with me um, a book of um, Islamic philosophy of the 6th century. Um, right. If you, anybody who studies and knows about it, Islam will know that Islam in the 6th century was actually pretty clever uh, at mathematics, at philosophy, uh, at all the, the, the great arts. And um, where Islamists are, by many people wrongly, considered to be ignorant, they have a tradition, the great tradition, yeah. well it's the 7th century actually, not the 6th century, because Islam was not 
1626 or 646, I think it's the around. So it was the 7th century. Yeah. But um, they were fairly advanced in those days. And um, I took this book along and presented it with a copy, which is immediately saying, in, 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 uh, well, you know, the, I don't regard you as being totally stupid and totally crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I respect that. You were talking about him, not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I make an exception. You like both. I make an exception in your case. So it's a way of saying, you know, I, I, let's let's talk sensibly. Let's talk intelligently. Yeah. yeah. Um, you talk about Islam and stuff like that. I mean, I've been looking at some FBI statistics or something, and it's something like. 0.0002% of uh, Muslims are terrorists. But we seem to think in this country, because of the bombardment of media, that, you know, everybody's a terrorist sort of thing. Do people get brainwashed a bit too much about Muslims? Or? Well, I think they're victims of, or all victims of the propaganda from groups such as ISIS, yeah. who have been very active in, in that propaganda. And because it is so uh, so gruesome, mm. and spread and and terrorise people, it's been from the point of view of terrorising people, it's been extremely effective. Mm. What it has also done to the detriment of the Islamic faith in general is that it has, virtually in the eyes of people who don't understand the situation, tied all Muslims with the same brush, and that is wrong. Yeah, and that is very hurtful to to Muslims who are. Uh, Perfectly law-abiding, honest, decent people, yeah. and who are then seen as in this negative light, which is a great, uh, a great shame. But um, that is what has happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, you also said about, um, you know, there's one guy standing next to you, for example, with a hostage situation. Um, is it down to luck who dies and who doesn't? Is there an element of luck in it, or is there an element of? No, I think it's. I think there's. Sometimes it is, but sometimes, again, going back to my own experience in Beirut, the people who died there and who were virtually destined to die from the way from the word go were the people who had a direct connection to the military or to intelligence. Oh, yeah. If anybody was in the military and fighting as a soldier or undercover in the intelligence world, then they died. Yeah. I can think of, uh, who was it, Buckley, CIA station chief in Beirut, he died, UN observers died, and so on. Those who were, I mean, I was very fortunate because um, I was uh, fell under suspicion. One of the reasons I was captured is because the trust I built up was broken, and they uh, wrongly assumed that I was uh, a full-time intelligence agency of America. Yeah. And if I hadn't been, uh, I wouldn't be doing this interview now, yeah. dead years ago. Yeah. Um, let, let's, let's talk about when you actually, um, you went over to uh, basically pull out John McCarthy and many of the other people. Yes, I went back to Beirut at a time when it was fairly, fairly dangerous and hostages were disappearing off the streets. In great numbers, you know, British, American, German, French, so many different nationalities. And um, the families, again, I went out as a result of an appeal by the families to leave, to do something. 
Uh, I didn't particularly want to do it. I didn't particularly want to Most people wouldn't, though, would they? Let's face it, you know. Well, the reason I didn't want to do it is because I just finished uh, negotiating for the release of people in Libya. And it wasn't my full-time job. And my job for uh, Lambeth was to travel with the Archbishop uh, to arrange his meetings with heads of state and with uh, diplomatic uh, leaders and with, with um, church leaders all around the world. So I just, at the time, I think, I was arranging a visit to China and I was arranging a visit to Australia, which meant my having to go to both those places and at the same time to try and fit in other work. So I said, really, I can't take this on. Mm. Uh, but then when they persisted, uh, I agreed, knowing full well that one had to continue if you take up a case. I mean, it's irresponsible to say to grieving relatives, right, I'm going to take up your case. And then when it gets too difficult, say, okay, fine, I'm sorry, I've got to leave now. Yeah. The only time you should leave, in my view, if you're doing that job, is if your involvement becomes dangerous to the hostages themselves. And at that point, then you should say, sorry, you know, I, I pull out now. Yeah, so well, what is it that makes you want to do it? The other situations that you thought, I just want to help people? Well, I think, um, I think I've always had a sympathy for people who find themselves in extreme difficulties, or in difficulties of any kind. Um, that goes back, I suppose, I've been something with me all my life. That's one thing. And I suppose if you have a certain ability to, to say, to negotiate, then it's um, useful to be able to use it. Yeah. You know, you might as well deploy it in a useful purpose. So I suppose there are a couple of things. But having said that, having said that, and putting the best possible shine on it, I don't think you anybody ever does anything for any other person uh, without at the same time recognize they're doing something for themselves. Yeah. You're doing it because you want to do it yourself. And uh, I think there is an element of that in, in most people. I don't think I'm full of altruism at all. Yeah. Um, I think very few people are. Yeah. So can you tell me, you know, when you went over to Lebanon, when was the time the bombshell dropped when you thought, oh dear, I'm now a hostage. What happened? Well, I'd gone out there, and I'd, a couple of hostages had been released. I'd made contact with with the kidnappers. They told me that they were um, wanting better conditions for their relatives. They'd been held in Kuwait. I was promised to look into that, and um, I was. Uh, a very difficult situation. I couldn't get into Kuwait at all. I couldn't help on that front. Then the um, hostages were released by the name of David Jacobson. And when American hostages were released, they went to Wiesbaden in Germany, where I went and met with them. And one day, I went to see Jacobson, and he was convinced I got his release, and I couldn't think of what I'd And then uh, someone said, have you heard the news? And I said, what news? And they said there's a story that arms have been exchanged for the recent hostages. And that was the beginning of what became known as the Rank Contra. The Rank Contra was something that's got out of history. Uh, Iran was fighting the Iran Iraq War. It was important for Iran to have victory in that war. Um, Iran was also, at the same time, supporting Hezbollah in Lebanon as a Shia organization. And if they had a double agenda, unknown to me, 
uh, Colonel Oliver North um, went to uh, Iran and said, if you'll pressure your clients as well as with these hostages, um, we'll supply you with arms. And that happened. One hostage was released. Meant to be kept entirely secret. Mm. And of course, I knew nothing about it. I mean, I've learned all. I mean, you can't be uh, a negotiator in any of these situations without bumping into people from all the intelligence agencies. Yeah. If you're the only one to get any significant contact, everybody wants to know you. The difficulty is knowing how much to share and how much to keep back. And if you've got any political savvy at all, you will uh, not say everything because you know that um, very often uh, actions are taken by some governments in these situations uh, which you could not possibly agree with. I could not possibly agree with arms dealing. Right. And that faced me with a dilemma, you see. I had to say there, when I came away from that situation, I had to decide whether I was going to pull out there and have the taint of arms dealing, uh, arms dealing uh, over me for the rest of my life and over the church which I represented, or whether I was going to go back and say, right, I'm going to try and pick up the pieces. And so I went back. I don't regret going back. It was the right thing to do. It was a very difficult thing to do. Oh. But it was the right thing to do. And it was, um, you know, it's going back into a situation where the chances now of being killed or captured were extremely high, even higher than they were previously, yeah. because of the suspicions that were there. What, what was your conditions like in the in the cell? Well, the first year was one of um, I was in an underground cell. I was chained to the wall for twenty three hours and fifty minutes a day. Not to a radiator that was oh. later sold on eBay. There's <laughs> <laughs> a story about a radiator. <laughs> no, I've never actually chained for a radiator. I don't think I hardly ever saw a radiator. Because that was a story yeah. flying around, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was a story that. I'd seen my radiator on eBay and bought it, and uh, now I had it in rooms in college in Cambridge, which is nonsense. But <laughs> no, I was chained by by staples to the wall, twenty-three hours a day. Um, twenty-three hours a day, a day. Well, longer, or just ten minutes off to use the bathroom, and in a room which was much of the time in darkness. If I was in a, a, a above ground. Metal shutters were put in front of the window so no natural light came in. Um, I was blindfolded when I had to pull a blindfold over my eyes when anyone came in the room. I had no books and papers for about three and a half years. Um, I had um, nothing. So I slept on the floor three meals a day. Bread and uh, lemonade breakfast and a cup of tea. Often rice and beans or whatever lunchtime and the same for breakfast in the evening. And that went on in a monotonous diet for quite a long time. How, how did you manage to keep sane? Because you were like the sanest person ever, you know? I think the thing, the way you keep sane in situations of that kind is uh, you see your body physically deteriorate quicker than you would hope. You know, in other words, you're, you're getting older before your time. Yeah. Because your beard, my beard, I think we had to go white and my skin grew white because of no natural light and lose muscle tone because of no exercise. But um, what I realized was you have to be able uh, to keep your mind alive. 
I think a secret of, uh, of surviving in very difficult situations is to keep your mind active and to keep, to keep hopeful. Um, I began to write in my head. I mean, I wrote my first book, Taking on Trust. I wrote that in my head in captivity. Not every word, not every sentence, not every comma. The general outline of it. I mean, if you follow working about what you see, it moves backwards and forwards in time as the mind works in captivity. At one moment, you're in captivity. At another moment, you're back in childhood. You know, you're bringing up pictures in your mind. And I think um, what you're trying to do, what I was trying to do, I've always had a respect for good language. And I think good language has the capacity to bring harmony into the soul. Uh, and what you're trying to do by using good language, by writing, I wrote poetry in, 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 in captivity too, uh, is to somehow find that degree of inner harmony, keep yourself together. And also, another secret is um, don't try and do too much in terms of thinking about the future. Live for the day. Remember that your life is now. You have it now. You have it in restricted circumstances, but in those restricted circumstances, live it as fully as possible. Mm. I mean, that's what I say to, often said that to people who are serving civilian sentences in prison. You know, you need, it's a restricted circumstance, it has its difficulties, you still have life, and you still have opportunity there, if you want to take it, and you have opportunity to develop and expand your mind, if you wish to take it. Yeah. So do that. Do what you can do. What you can't do, fine, you can't do it. That's a part of it. So a lot of it was down to positive thinking? Yeah, so I think you've got to try and think positively. Of course, you're going to be, you're going to be scared at times, and you're going to feel depression at times. That's just normal. I mean, I was, I was tortured. I was um, beaten on the soles of the feet of the cable. Uh, I was uh, at mock execution. Um, How did they do the mock execution? Well, they took me in another room and uh, uh, put gun against my head um, and then dropped it and said another time. That was after the first year. The first year was one of, of interrogation. At that point, when they dropped it and said another time, I'd been subject to a lot of questioning. And uh, I think they were trying to determine whether or not I was genuinely humanitarian or whether I was in fact an agent of the government. And I was able to convince them I was genuinely humanitarian. They then said, we're going to release you. And I went to good accommodation for two weeks and then something happened. I, in the outside world, I'm not sure what it was, but instead of being released, I went back for another four years, uh, back to Chavez. Yeah. What uh, what did you actually think when they put the gun to your head and basically said bye bye bye? Well, it's a strange feeling actually, and it's I've often read about um, that type of experience. And I remember answering their questions, and it was almost as I was standing outside myself, looking at myself from the outside, um, and saying from the outside, although in actual responding to the questions. I felt my answers were faltering. Looking at me from outside, I felt, I said to myself, you're answering very boldly, you know, you're answering very clearly. It, it was a strange experience, it was very difficult to encapsulate what it really was, what it meant. But um, I didn't feel, 
I felt fear, not fear of death, because that will happen eventually to all of us. I didn't want to die in that particular circumstance, of course not. But um, the fear was just the simple fear, really, you know, mm. as simple as that. Um, I think of most human beings you think about. And how are they going to kill me? Are they going to shoot me? Are they going to mutilate me? Are they going to, what are they going to do? Yeah. No. With, um, you know, you're saying you're like almost out of body. Would you say, um, can people use that in their daily life where they go through a challenging situation and they kind of almost take their, their, their mind out of their body and they're looking down from below, from above, thinking, this is how to handle the situation. Is, is that how you would do it? That's a very similar experience. Yeah, that was, it was very much like that. Now, what, what that is, I'm not sure. I mean, some people explain it by chemical reaction in the brain. It could well be that. I mean, yeah. who knows? Um, but that is exactly what it was. So you were standing outside yourself, looking in on yourself. Yeah. yeah. And how important was your faith in this? Well, faith in God. is important, but um, I, 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 my view on, on, on faith is this, so, um, put it this way, that God is a great mystery. I don't believe for one moment that anybody who has faith necessarily has any particular special protection from the ups and downs of life. I don't think it's meant for that at all. I think you take your chances along with everybody else in this world. I think what it does enable you to have is a certain resource which enables you to cope with circumstances as they come along. And my view of faith is this, that um, where I think the Christian faith and many other great religions actually have, uh, have not been entirely right is that they have in some instances claimed to have the total and absolute truth. And I think that's a mistake. Um, and I would rather side with the scientist who says that we are constantly seeking new truth. Mm. And there's always something to, to, to find. Now I think you can equate that with faith. Because I think if you take the concept that God is a mystery, and that part of the function of the great religions is to put a human face on that mystery, to provide you, if you like, with a handrail to guide you towards a greater understanding of that mystery which lies within you and beyond you, um, more of a contemplative approach to life. But not, to, and therefore you can say that the, the actions and the stories contained within the great religions, actually you must look behind them for the deeper meaning and not necessarily take them as absolutely literal. And how many, you know, one of the great problems of many of the religions is they're arguing about whether this is right, whether that is right, all the dogmatic points. They're failing in the essential understanding of progressing uh, towards greater wholeness and to greater history. And I believe what one of the, I suppose, a fundamental philosophy of mine would be that we cannot, we cannot fully ever comprehend God but God is a great mystery. But we are called, in some ways, to be co-creators. And to be a co-creator means that you have a responsibility, not just for yourself, you have to take that responsibility for other people and for the environment of which you are part. We are essential parts of the, of the universe. I mean, 
it's, it's reflected in the words of the of the funeral service, actually. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The, the atoms that constitute my body pre-existed long before my body came into existence. And when I die, they will go back and they will be reconstituted again. They will go up. We're part of the universe which we are, uh, which we're observing. Yeah. And so I think there's a, an essential link between nuclear physics in, uh, in particle physics and general theory of relativity and quantum theory, you know, providing an understanding of the framework. Uh, and sometimes that framework can seem rather cold. Religion gives it a heart. And it's the same with the body, you know. You have the human body, and you can analyze it and examine it and take it apart and so on. But somehow, there within the human body is the essential spirit that gives life. When you die, there is just the body. And there is something there. And religion provides us with that essential soul, which we can't define. And the language used to define it is different than the scientific language. But they needn't be mutually exclusive. They can belong together. Do you think that an atheist then can be, um, I don't know, can handle challenges as much as someone with religion? Because it, it, some people would say, oh, well, religion is a, a, a crutch or... I think an atheist can. I think many examples of people, atheists and, and agnostics, doing that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, personally, I think um, a more honest opinion, a most honest, honest view, rather, is the agnostic view rather than the atheist view. I think the atheist is equally as dogmatic as the, as the, as the, one, the believer. You know, yeah. uh, the, the agnostic is the one who actually is probably uh, more honest and saying, well, look, you know, I'm not. Yeah. Because the atheist is saying, I mean, people like Dawkins are so dogmatic, you know, it's almost religious. <laughs> yeah, you atheist religious people, get off your high horse. But uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it's uh, I, I can't even comprehend the, the groundness, and I don't have the answers and stuff like that. It's just it's beyond, isn't it? There's there's so much, so much, so much beyond. Uh, do you have any resentments at all to your captors? I I don't agree with what they do or what they did. I don't understand why. You wouldn't start a punch up with them if they walked down the dog and the dog and bone or whatever. I've been back to see them. I've been back to see them. You have? Yeah. How, how did that go? Well, I'm often puzzled myself as to what can be done uh, in this world to promote better understanding between people, to, for ordinary people such as myself and others, to work toward peace. And, you know, you can't these days hold the newspaper or listen to the news without being incredibly depressed at times of the state of the situation. It's really bad. Yeah. Warfare on every hand and trouble on every, in every quarter. And I said, what can we do? And I came up with a very naive and very simple answer. And that is, if only people who've had disputes one with another could sit down, face each other, agreed to put the past in the past, we begin to have the basis of uh, political settlement because there could be no settlement on the ground in disputed areas unless the people on the ground trust and trust each other. So I thought, well, if they were only saying that, then I better go and do something about it. 
So 20 odd years earlier, I'd been given the promise of safe conduct to see hostages who were ill. One was about to die. I'd accepted that, I was captured, word was broken. Uh, 20 odd years later, I went back to the same place, headquarters, and sat down uh, with one of the leaders of Hezbollah. Uh, and I said uh, to him, I said, we've been through difficult times together. They considerably advanced, I haven't changed, mm -hmm. I said, I don't agree with what was done, but let's put that past in the past and try and build something creative from it. So yeah. he said, well, what can we do? I said, well, I'm just back from the Syrian border. I've seen the refugees there. I've seen the terrible sufferings. I said, can you at least let me have heating oil for those people? And he said, well, I can do that. Now, it's a small gesture. I don't think that's going to necessarily mean at all great political change or what have you. But I do believe, let us say, if 10,000 people in Israel, 10,000 people in the occupied territories, all the people would sit down, you begin to have the basis for political settlement. So when people say there's nothing ordinary people can do, there is something that can be done. It's not easy, it's not difficult, and I'm not naive enough to believe that it's going to happen, unless it's going to happen overnight, it won't. But I'd like to shape you out of the view that it is only the politicians and the leaders, so-called leaders of communities, who can work in this way. They can't work in this way without people on the ground. Yeah. And people on the ground can take their responsibility to do that. Yeah. And um, you, you talked as well about the, the holding on to the anger. I remember reading a quote from Buddha, I think it was Buddha, um, might have been somebody else. It was, um, holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent throwing it at them, You're, you were the one that gets burned? Well, that, that, that's not my quote. I think what I said was, anger is like a consuming fire seeking all whom it may devour. Do not consume, do not extinguish the flames totally, yeah. but warm yourself by the gentle glow of the embers. Yeah. In other words, saying anger is a normal human emotion. We all have it. Um, but and, you know, it can be used constructively and negatively. If you don't deal with it, then it will deal with you. Yeah. And anger that festers inside is rather like a cancer that enters the soul. It will more harm to those who hold it than against those to whom it's held. Yeah. And you see that time and time again. So it doesn't mean to say you won't feel angry or you should never be angry. It does say learn to deal with it constructively rather than letting it deal with you negatively. Well, I'm glad you're not angry at my question, mate, because you're a big guy and you just go like that. Get out! So, you've been doing a lot of amazing uh, charity work. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Well, I'm organized, a president of an organization called the Mayors for the Homeless. And um, I opened First Community in the United Kingdom, in Cambridge, 20 years ago. Enables homeless people to come into a community, have a good standard of accommodation, leave behind the door, work according to their, living, their, their abilities in renovating furniture, renovating vehicles, which are sold on, and begin to get back into life. Because if you've been on the streets for years, it's 
pretty difficult business to go back into life. Yeah. Very successful. We've got 29 communities now in the last few years, and another seven coming along, seven or eight coming along. And goodness knows how many homeless people now have been got back into life at the place they can manage. Hostage UK, which gives support to hostage families, does training seminars for those who are professionally engaged in the field. Um, that started in the UK, it's now growing, it's now developing into a hostage international. We have um, set up in America recently, we've got uh, setting up in Rome and in Australia and other places, developing international agency. That's doing very well, giving a lot of support to hostage families, in particular those who, the families of those who have been so brutally treated in recent years. Uh, then, Wicare, one of the reasons, which is, I found it 30 years ago, that Wicare is an organization that um, gives job opportunities for young people around the world. Um, yeah. And, you know, where there are no job opportunities, youngsters are open to joining terrorist groups and finding, you know, some identity and some purpose in those groups yeah. once they're in the core. So, I used to terrorize my parents. Terrorize me, you as well. So, anyway, that's, uh, that's, um, that's, going, that's going well. Yeah. And then I do a lot of work in prisons and so on. I mean, you know, just go on with it. Yeah. But, yeah. And you had a book out many years ago called uh, Taking on Trust. This is 25th anniversary, it's best selling book. And uh, Paul Hughes back there, our amazing cameraman, is, uh, has been reading it on the way up. And, and you found a quote about the an underdog or something like that, didn't you, Paul? Oh, I did indeed, yeah. Uh, it's from Taking on Trust, and it says, Through my life, I have always had a sympathy <coughs> for the underdog, the one who finds him or herself excluded or on the margins of society. That's why I agreed to do this lecture today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, that's so fitting because what Terry doesn't know is I've got a book out called The Underdog. <laughs> really? Yes, I've got a, I've got a copy for you there. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. So, oh, that's right. We, we need it there. We promote Terry's book because you've got a new book coming out. Well, it's out now. It's called. It is actually. Well, I've got two books actually. Two yeah. of I've written about six, but these two are out at the moment. There's one called Out of the Silence, which is uh, a book of narrative and poetry. Yeah. And uh, it's the type of thing that goes to write in captivity. Yeah. Uh, in order to promote that degree of harmony, you know, good, good language again, trying to use good language. And then a totally different book. One of the things you must do in these situations of desperation is you must not lose your sense of humour. It's important to laugh. What if people go through an extremely difficult time, like, you know, they go out shopping one day, they come back, and there's a parking ticket. Well, what do they do to handle such an immensely challenging situation? <laughs> Throw away the car and take the bus. <laughs> Seriously. Um, I think, I mean, obviously we all get annoyed. We all get annoyed at those things. We all get cross yeah. about that. And oh, for, for burglary, you know, if someone comes and wrecks my house, I'm going to be very, very angry, of course. You'll have to call that off, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, I mean, of course you would. But yeah. somehow, again, in all these situations, um, you really need to say, well, there are people in far, far worse situations than myself. Yeah. And I can always say, I can say it in captivity. But what I did in captivity, I used to 
tell myself stories to make myself laugh. And one of the books I've written is called The Voyage of the Golden Handshake, which is a story I've often lectured on cruise ships. This is a story about a cruise ship where everything goes wrong yeah. around the world. And it's um it's it's a comic novel. Yeah. Is that available on Amazon? Yeah, it's available on Amazon. Yeah. So you've got Taken on Trust, yeah. you've got uh, Out of the Silence, yeah. and... The Voyage of the Golden Handshake. The Voyage of the Golden Handshake, <laughs> I like that. It's a, it's yeah. a comic novel, and it does all right, yeah, it does fine. Yeah. I mean, I wrote, it, I, I, I wrote it because, just for the fun of writing it, you yeah. know, I enjoyed writing it, it made me laugh. It, made, it reminded me of some of the stories that I used to make myself laugh with in Canterbury. Fantastic. And if people uh, want to see more of your stuff, there's the websites. Uh, you've got the website. I don't have a website. But you've got the website for the host, uh, the For the book. The book. Uh, yeah. They're all Amazon, I think. They're, they're all on Amazon. Oh, and then the charities, they're obviously. Oh, the charity, yeah. Amers UK, AUS, Hostage UK website, yeah, that's that. YCare website, yeah. I don't have my own personal one. Yeah. Yeah, but there, yeah. Fantastic. And there's one last thing um, you'd like to say to people who are sort of just struggling in life now. Just a quick sort of word. Well, there's a lot of people struggling in life. I mean, more people in this world struggling in life than there are who are not. Yeah. And uh, I suppose what I would say is that life can be pretty hard and pretty bitter um, at times. And it really can be. And it is for a lot of people. And suffering. There's no respectful persons, and they will land on people regardless of what they've done through no fault of their own very often. But what I've often said is that whilst it is always hard and difficult, in the vast majority of cases, indeed, and destroy, often suffering can turn around and utilize creatively. And when you look across history, you see some of the great works of art, literature, whatever, they've often emerged from situations of great suffering. Um, yeah. Something creative has come from it. So I would say, yes, I sympathize. It's hard going. But um, remember, it need to destroy you. It is possible for something creative to emerge from it. Fantastic. Terry Waite, humanitarian, best selling author, an all round good guy. And a big supporter of the underdog. Do you like that, <laughs> Thank you very, very much for your time. It has been an absolute honour and, and a real, real pleasure. Thank That's you true. very much. And thank you, Mark Colburn, for having us, uh, for, for making this uh, possible. Thank you to the Travellers Club. Very beautiful in here. And uh, hope you took something really cool from that, guys, and have an awesome week. Take care. Bye. This is Pure West Radio.
fresh hot boots. If they want the drama, got the old. Ship the whole crew to the cruise. Dude, you don't even see a move. Ride with me, ride with me, boss. I got a hard head, but her soft. She want the last name with the ring on it. Cause I pulled out a million cash, told her plank on it. Mark Llewellyn here on Pure West Radio, listening to my interviews with successful people from 8 o'clock till 9 o'clock on Sundays. Find out how some of the most successful people around the country have become successful and you can apply those principles to your own life. 
Stay tuned on Pure West Radio.
was in your mind Then I took yours and made a mine I didn't notice cause my love was blind Said I'd catch you if you fall And if they laugh at more And then I got you off your knees Put you right back on your feet Just so you could take advantage of me a wrap from me Mark Llewellyn I shall be back next Sunday from 8 o'clock till 9 o'clock on Pure West Radio with another interview from somebody very successful tune in to Pure West Radio have a great evening take care guys for Pembrokeshire from Pembrokeshire this is Pure West Radio in